see to the kids, they are welcome to head off to the classes prepared for them. And we'll be again in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 5, 6, and 7. Uh, before we pray, though, just something for you guys to be in prayer, prayer for, for uh, Pastor Caleb and I. Over the next, basically, roughly two weeks, we're really going to be trying to pound out the fall and what the fall looks like. Uh, we have a leadership meeting on Monday, and so just to be praying for us as we have been uh, wrestling with this for some time of just how to work with what God has given us as the kids that are here, as the Lord has entrusted us with uh, more kids, it seems, every day. And uh, so that we would just be faithful to proclaim the truth to them through all generations for to teach them the things of God. Plus also then, too, for you to be praying how God could use you in the upcoming year to use the gifts that God has given you. Because remember, the role of the pastor is not to equip you to let us do the work of the ministry. <laughs> the role is to equip you to do the work of the ministry with us as we work together. So um, this is what we have been entrusted as a church body with the next generation. And so let's not take that lightly, and let's each one of us be asking what role we can play with the gifts and talents God has given us as we move forward. So that being said, let's pray and ask God's uh, blessing as we go into the Word. Dearly Father, thank you so much, again, that you have not left us wandering in the dark, groping for the truth, that you have shown your light as a beacon of how we are to live. But yet, dearly Father, we know because of sin we are going to chafe against that. It's going to rub us the wrong way. But yet you have given us, those of us who know you, we have your Holy Spirit that enables us to, to live a life of godliness. And so, dearly Father, as the flesh and the Spirit wrestle, dearly Father, may we be committed to what your word has to say. Guide us. We desperately need it. Give us wisdom. We desperately need it. James tells us, if any of us lack wisdom, let us ask. And so, dearly Father, we know without a doubt we lack it. So we're asking, dearly Father, help us to be wise in how we live as godly husbands and godly wives. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we open up our passage today, we're going to see an example at the very beginning. And as I was mulling over this idea of an example, uh, one of the things I enjoy doing, um, I would not call myself good at it, but I enjoy pretending like I have mechanical skills. And uh, there's certain things in the car that I can feel confident doing. Uh, there's certain things I don't feel confident doing. And the things that I don't feel confident doing, there's a cheapness of me that makes me have to have confidence to fix things, and by God's grace, there's usually a video online of someone doing it. Now, the problem of a video online of someone doing it, it takes them 10 minutes, and me 30 minutes and bloody knuckled and everything else afterwards, and they have no problem getting off things, but my car is always 10 times more rusty than their car. But we, as my son and I are working on things, and we're out there trying to figure this out, we watch the guy and he tells you, you know, you need to have these wrenches, you need to have this, you need to go get this part, and everything else, and then we watch it all and go, well, that's simple enough, right? And then we get out there and we forget something, we're going, what did he do next? And then one of us runs in and, you know, you're in our family, like, do we take off our shoes and everything else to get in? Do we just bring the computer out and listen? And we have this back and forth between that, looking at the example, right, and then looking the mess we have in front of us, and the back and forth we're going, because these videos actually help us, and even I would even sometimes say encourage us to go, you can actually do this. Like, and if we're honest, almost all of the trades can be done if you're just patient and you're willing to learn. But what happens is, what are we not? 
patient and willing to learn, and we just say it'd be easier just to get on the phone and call someone, right? But these examples that are there are for us to learn, are for us to also understand the task is possible, as well as to understand what not to do. I've watched videos where they say, don't do this. And you're like, oh, I would have done that if you would have said not to do this. And this, these examples that we have all around are for us, and we come to God's word, we go, well, why does God's word give us examples? Well, we'll look at that. But before we get to this example, I want to summarize 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll even go back a little bit into 1 Peter chapter 2. So just to give you an overarching picture, because in a way, we're going to go about two points in, and then we're going to turn the page to another topic, and, but we need to make sure we're understanding. So basically, if you just summarize chapter 2, chapter 2 could be summarized very shortly as this. Christ was our example, and we need to follow him. In, rela in all relationships, we're following Christ's example. And summarizing it all, and Peter lists the relationships. And one of the ways we follow Christ's example, and he talks about is, is Jesus came down here and he showed us how to live, and he lived in a way that he entrusted himself to God. He understood he was going to be reviled, but what did he not do? He did not revile in return. He, understand, he understood he was not going to be treated fairly, but what did he do? He trusted God in how he lived. He saw past his circumstances, and he realized that he was trusting God and God alone. And now it comes down to chapter 3, and Peter is explaining to us one of the most intimate relationships that we have here on earth is husband and wife relationships. And he says, now, likewise, wives, here's your marching order. And the marching order was this. Some of you women are going to have men who do not know God. How do you work with that? And we even said the principles even go further to what do you do when you have a husband who's not following after God? How do you work through that? And Peter goes through and he says, this is how you do it. This is what brings lasting change. He says, it's not by just what you say. What will bring lasting change in your husband is the way you conduct yourself, what you do. And then he goes down even further and he says, not only that, you don't use your beauty as a way of manipulating the situation to get what you want. What you do is you use the inner beauty that will actually bring about lasting change in your husband. This is what God uses to bring about lasting change. Because anyone can bring about superficial change by just manipulating the circumstances, but there is no lasting ultimate change. And then we're going to see how Sarah even conducts herself as well. And all of these things are done because the great crescendo of the passage is in chapter 3, roughly verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, where Peter is going to say, this is what's going to happen. If you live your life in a way that is entrusting yourself to God, not the, ex the external circumstances, but if you look past those to God, one day you will be asked for the hope that is within you. And so he's saying, wives, you're not hoping in your husband, you're hoping in God, and this is how you conduct yourself. And we're going to see the same thing with husbands. But all of this is done so when you are asked for the hope that is within you, not your external speech, but the hope that is within you, this is why we need the inner person to speak, you'll be able to give a testimony and glorify God. This is the whole point of it all. He's trying to say, the world says live this way, and God is going to say we live this way. Okay, again, remember this whole thing is exiles and sojourners we're living. And at the beginning, we started talking about, even as we get into the husbands today, Chapter, I mean, our third point, we will be hitting the husbands. As we start doing this, you're going to hear over and over again, it sounds like the world is saying this, but God says this. This is your sin nature over here, but God is saying, no, you go over here. And that's why we go, without God, you're in a whole 
A lot of trouble, all right? This is where God needs to be in these relationships. So that all being said, hopefully now that we're all on the same page and there are no possible questions that can be asked. Let's start off with verse 5. For this, meaning all the things I literally just talked about, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Now, I want to make sure clear. Notice we're saying women, that's plural, and then we get a singular story of Sarah. So I want to take pause here for a second and go, this is what Peter is saying. Holy women, and plural, conducted themselves this way. They're examples of how you are to live. Peter is not saying, good luck, you, lady, that no one else has ever done this, but I'm asking you to do something that no one else has ever done. What he's saying is there's a pattern of ladies who have gone on past you that can help encourage you to live this way. This is not something new that you are called to. This is not something revolutionary that it, Peter only was realizing at this time this is something that I'm telling you new. He's not giving anything new. He's saying this is the way godly women have always acted in the past. There's a pattern to this. So th this is what he's saying. Literally, there are ways that ungodly women have acted, and this is how ungodly women adore themselves. And he's literally saying this is how godly women have acted, and this is the way they adore themselves. And so we have these examples here. And the reason why we have these examples here is God gives us examples for us to follow for our good and His glory. These are for our good and His glory. So that means you are not alone in figuring this out. That means, ladies, you can rejoice that you're not sitting here going, I have no idea what Peter is talking about here. I don't know what internal beauty looks like. I do not know what does it mean to function in such a way that brings about permanent lasting change to my spouse. Peter is saying, you have multiple examples. So let's look real quick at the passage of Scripture where we have multiple examples. Hebrews chapter 11. I'd like to spend a little bit of time in Hebrews. So just a couple books back, you'll get hit James, and then you'll be at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll be at verse 13 through 16. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is literally, they call it the hall of faith, where people are being commended for their faith in God. And he just gets done roughly talking, the writer of Hebrews here roughly gets done talking about Sarah and Abraham. And in the middle of talking about Sarah and Abraham, which we're going to get to in a little bit, he says in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of that homeland, which they have gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, I'm just going to summarize this here real quick. This is what the text is saying in a, in a nutshell. We have a group of people that were promised something. Sometimes individuals were promised something. And many of them only saw a small glimpse of that promise. So I'll give you an example. Abraham has promised a massive nation that's going to come from him. By the time he dies, we do not have a massive nation started. But we have the inklings of it. And what he is doing is he is seeing past what is right in front of him to the future promises, to the future areas of faith yet to come. And he's saying he is looking past his external circumstances because he truly trusts in God because he who promised is faithful to complete it. So even though he did not see it full, now he is seeing it 
happen in the future. But we're seeing inklings of this. I'll give you a couple inklings of this. Um, the writer of Hebrews, I would, if we ever find out who it was one day in eternity, I would love to go. This is kind of a little bit of a harsh statement. Hebrews eleven twelve, speaking of Abraham. From one man, meaning Abraham, who him, as good as dead, was born more ancestors as the stars. I mean, how would you like to be called by the time you have your first child by the writer? You were about as good as dead. All right. Then you had your child. All right. But what are we starting to see here? The very inklings of from death comes what? Life. Even we go even further into Romans and in Hebrews where it's even talking about Abraham and Isaac where Abraham is understanding when he's to offer Isaac that Abraham is literally planning on killing Isaac but God is able to rise him back from the dead. And we're starting to see the inklings of all of the gospel message starting to be fulfilled through all of these things but they don't see it all yet. And their salvation is found just like ours is trusting in God and God alone that he will do what he has promised. By faith. They went. This is why by faith they did these things. And these are our examples. Now Hebrews continues to go on in verse 12. Chapter 12. I don't know why I said verse. Chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. At the end of all of this, this great crescendo of the hall of faith, you have the writer of Hebrews saying that the world was not even worthy of these people. Now speaking of all of these people that were talked about, verse chapter 12 summarizes it by saying, Therefore... You are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles you and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated as the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what's happening here. As we live our Christian walk, the author is saying you were literally surrounded by these witnesses. And as these witnesses are surrounding you, they are not saying, look at me. They're not saying, look at us. They're saying, look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. In a way, which still in my mind, it's like they're sitting there going, come on. Don't focus on the immediate. Focus on the eternal. See the big picture. Trust God. He who promised was faithful to us, he will be faithful to you. You are not alone in this. Look to him. Yeah, I know things are going bad. I was literally married to a guy that was dead. You know, it says it. And he had a kid with me. And I was just as dead as he was. He was just a little more dead than me, says Sarah. And God's able to do these things far greater than we could ever imagine. And so stop looking at right now. Look on. And so when we sit here and we say, so who are these godly examples? We don't study Ruth so all you ladies can become the next Ruth. We study Ruth so all you ladies can see God in these things. Because I don't want a Ruth. I want Allison to resemble God. I don't need another Ruth. Like Ruth was there, good for her. We don't need another David. We need another follower of God. All right, so I'm not out there going, where's my giant? I'm out there going, where's my saviors and following him? And so what we don't do is we keep the heroes of the Bible heroes, but not worshipped heroes. We worship the God they worship. And it's fine to study these people, but we study them on how they're pointing us to God. You follow? That's something we, we've gotten so confused in our church world of these things that we've made them greater things, and all of them are pointing us to God. Remember that one time, whether you do or not, one of the angels was standing one time writing... And John falls down and tries to worship him. It's like the angel kind of backhand slapped him. It's like, knock it off. I'm just a messenger. You worship God. I mean, most of us saw an angel. We would be like, wow, that's pretty amazing, right? And that's pretty special. 
and everything else. But the angel's like, I'm nobody compared to him. And this is what I would even argue Peter is saying here as he then gives us an example. Because what the people are literally saying here is we turn back to 1 Peter 3. Here is what I really do believe, and I love the fact that we sang the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, because that is literally what these people are saying. This is what we're going to see that Sarah says. Sarah is going to basically, in so many words, we're going to summarize that she's saying, God's got this, he's going to hold me fast as we go through this. So now, point number two. Let's look at the example of Sarah. For this is how holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves, submitting to their husband. And now here's the example. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, before we get any further into this, we've got to figure out what is going on here. So let's turn back to the passage that this is quoting found in Genesis chapter 18. So back to Genesis chapter 18. We need to figure out the story. If we don't understand the story, we have no idea why she's calling him this. What does this even mean? And everything else going on. But again, as we're turning back, remember again, one of the points of biblical interpretation is read the whole counsel. All right, because it's easy just to hear something like Sarah called him Lord. And I have been around incredibly godly women and have never once heard them say to their husband, Lord. All right, so like what's going on here? Okay, we need to get, grasp this. So in Genesis chapter 18, we're going to get the promise that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child. Now, remember, we learned back in Hebrews, Abraham is as good as dead, right? And we're going to find out how Sarah's doing in this process, all right? So in chapter 18, we have a really interesting example of the pre-incarnate manifestation of the second part of the Trinity. I know that's a mouthful, all right, but we literally have three guys come walking up to Abraham, and one of them is clearly the pre-incarnate manifestation of the second part of the Trinity, all right, because he's not called Jesus, all right, we get Jesus, and that's a whole other topic that we can talk about in the New Testament, all right, but we see here this second part of the Trinity at the moment here. God, this is not anything less than God, all right? But we see him here, and he literally says, and it's clear one of them is God because he says, you're going to have a kid, all right? He's speaking as God. And we would say, these are one of those beautiful things we look into, and we stand even back in all and wonder of these things. And so there's been debate of this two angels and God, what's going on here? But I can tell you very clearly, one of them is God speaking to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, you're going to have a kid. And Sarah, in verse 12, well, actually, go. let's go to, let's start at 9. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Uh, for those of you in your Bible translation, uh, verse 10 there, the word Lord uh, it should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, referring to the God's name. So this is why we say this is God speaking here. And he says, I will return to you and you're going to have a son. Sarah's listening. And verse 11 gives us a little commentary. Now Sarah and Abraham were old, advanced in years. Abraham good and dead. And the way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So she's not able to have any more children. And let alone that, she's married to a walking dead man. All right, so... All earthly speaking, what, do we, what chance do we have here of a child? All of us would look and go, not happening, right? There's no way this is happening. But who promised it? God. And even said, next year, what? You're having a kid. 
So Sarah, like all of us, she's in the tent, and notice what she says. So Sarah laughed to herself. This is an internal conversation Sarah's having. She chuckles, and here's what she's saying inside her heart and mind. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure, the pleasure of having a child. Notice she does not say, after I'm worn out and my husband or Abraham. She called him what there? Lord. Now we have to figure out what does this term Lord mean? Literally, this term in the Greek means the idea of belonging to. So let's read this out. It means a whole lot of other things, but in the way it's used here, it is not talking as master, it's talking to belonging to. So you could put it this way. So Sarah laughed to herself, I am worn out, and the one I belong to is old, shall I have pleasure. Um, I love the way Alistair Begg put it. Uh, he says, Sarah, I mean, Sarah is speaking here under her breath, exposing her heart. And how does she talk about her husband? Alistair Begg goes on to say, she calls him my guy. That's my guy. See that? And the guy that, my guy there, we're not having. We are not having this kid. Because I know my guy, and he knows me. We're not having this. Uh, one of the things, for those of you who had the privilege of uh, listening to songs back in the 60s, uh, there's a song by Mary Wells, as I've been mulling this over, talking about how Sarah is saying, hey, that's my man. All right. Mary Wells puts it this way, and I thought, this is well put. She goes, and I would even say this is the heart of where Sarah is coming from. Mary Wells says, there's nothing you can say to tear me away from my guy. There's nothing you could do because I'm stuck on glue to my guy. I'm sticking to my guy like a stamp on a letter, like the birds of a feather we stick together. I'm telling you from the start, I can't be torn apart from my guy. Then she goes on to remind us, he may not be a movie star. But when it comes to being happy, we are. She's literally saying, what's her attitude towards him? That's my man over there. And I don't know how this is working out, but that's my guy. That's my, you could even go on, that's my leader. He's my man. Right? And her attitude was one of, we're doing this together because that's my guy. Now, I absolutely adore this example that I found one time. Uh, there's a um, husband and wife marriage series called The Art of Marriage. And in this, there was a lady that was talking about this concept of when Sarah called her Abraham Lord. Here's the way she put it. She goes, now, I want you guys to think of your teams, your marriage, your family, like team, and then you fill in the blank. So like we would have Team Yorgi, we have Team Cable, all these other things. You could go Team Holcomb and you just fill in the blank, all right? We have all these teams around here. Now, the team that God has placed you on may have some weak spots, all right? You may not be, you know, you may be the next Joanna Gaines, but your husband may not be Chip, right? You may be able to decorate like that, but you're no way you're here or vice versa, right? You may be the handyman, but she can't put two things together. And you're sitting there going, We're, this is just not working out, right? You may not be the most athletic couple. You may not be the one that if we had a two-legged race at the Smokies afterwards, you guys are coming in first, Right? All right, you may go, you don't, you know, putting us together, we're in, but what you know at the end of the day is what? We cheer our heart out for our team. I mean, you may have someone who's struggling, but what do you do? We're on a team together. So, like, I'll give you an example of how this even plays. This is our mindset that we have to have as husband and wives. 
So let's just take the example of a, of a football team. You have linemen. Now, I'm not trying to say husband and wives and either. So we have linemen, all right? And we have a running back. I'll let you decide in this analogy who you are, right? But the linemen, their role is to block and to keep the quarterback protected as well as to make holes for the running back to run through. If your line has not done its work by lifting weights and getting it, doing its role, the running back, no matter how good you are, even if you're Barry Sanders, doesn't matter how good you are, you're not running through those gaps. And the linemen play their role, but what does the running back have to do? He's got to know the play to know where he's going to run, but they both need each other. Is one more important than the other? No, but each have different roles. If the quarterback does not call the play at the right time, does not hand the ball off, all of these things go out of sync. But what happens at the end of the day, though, very rarely does an offensive lineman get interviewed at the end of a game. Who gets interviewed at the end of the game? The running back who ran through the gaping wide hole that the offensive lineman did. But it's funny how many times if you read in the, down here in the bottom of the article how the running back at the, end of the, at the end of the game actually took the line out for dinner thanking them because he couldn't do his job unless the line did. As well as this even going further. A good running back knows the strength of the other team. A good running back knows which linemen are the weaker linemen. So he's understanding that they're probably, the pressure is probably going to come from this side. These guys are trying their best, but what? This is where the struggle is going to be. So the running back knows where the struggle is going to be on his team and goes, we're going to move this way. Or I can even use the fact that he's going to blow by that guy to his disadvantage, and they work together as a team. They not, might not be the best thing that there is out there, but they work together because what are they saying? We're in this together. And this concept is what we need to have as husband and wives. This is the, the heart behind this, that we're a team working together. You may have some areas of a family that you're phenomenal at, and there's other areas that you just go, this is not us, but what do we do? We still cheer each other on, we still encourage each other, because our heart and our minds are going, we're moving together to what God has called us to. All right, real quick, back to 1 Peter 3. I want to make sure, if you're not back in... First Peter, I want to make sure we're clear on this whole concept here. Because before we move off the topic of what submission is, because we see here that she's submitting herself to her husband. And basically, if you want to summarize the way she's saying, that's my guy, that's the man I'm going to follow. He's what God has given me. And this is the way I need to conduct myself. And this is the way women, in the, of all examples, conduct themselves as they follow their husband. I want to make sure we're clear on what submission is not, because so many things are confused in our world, and they try to pound that. So I just want to go down through here what Peter, 1 Peter 3 is not saying. All right, number one, this is from um, an article that John Piper wrote on what submission is not. Point number one here. Submission is not agreeing with your husband on all important matters. Because what does verse 1 remind us? That there's some things that the husband is not doing right that the wife is not going to go, oh, everything's okay. That there's some times where she's going to go, this needs to change. But what does Peter tell us? Here's how you change it. Here's how you don't change it. It's okay for them to realize this is not okay. So just because it's an important matter doesn't mean the wife has to just sit there and nod like a bobblehead. Because the woman here that Peter is talking to is a woman who sees that there's some important things that are wrong. And Peter says, here's how you go about it. Point number two. It is not leaving your brain at the altar. This woman has an opinion. This woman that Peter's describing about has dug into the word. She understands what disobedience to the word is. She's a woman who has an opinion, but knows how to go about bringing lasting change. 
This is the part that Peter's trying to tell us. But the world tries to tell us all the other things that this is not. Point number three, submission is not avoiding the effort to change your husband. Literally, she desires for her husband to follow after God. She desires change. And again, Peter says what? Here's how you go about it. Point number four, submission is not putting your husband's will before the will of God. Again, 3.1 tells us that. She looks to God. Her husband's going to be off. Literally, this is what it's saying. Your husband is off. You look to God. You look to God, all right? But what happens is we make gods of each other. And that's its own sermon. Point number five. It's not getting all your spiritual strength from your husband. Look at this in verse five. For this is how holy women who hoped in God. They did not holy women who hoped in their husband. All right? They saw past their husband. They saw God who they had their hope in. And they realized that only lasting change would be my husband having his hope where? In God, not me. And then six, we see this in verse six. They were women who were not cowering in the corner in fear. They did not act in fear. Submission is not acting in fear. So to summarize it, as John puts it, submission is then the divine call. The divine call. Think about that for a moment. The God call. This is God calling you ladies who are married. This is what submission is. It's a call from God to joyfully and fearlessly honor and affirm your husband leadership. This is what Sarah said. He's my guy. I'm following him. Now, what do we know that happened? Abraham tried to do it a different way. And God tells Abraham, no, it's not this guy. You, Sarah, will have a son. But Sarah even... Went along with that other part there, but God's saying, no, you will have a child here. Faithfully and joyfully and fearlessly honoring and affirming your husband's leadership and to help carry it out according to her gifts. So this, you see the team aspect of this. God has placed the husband in the leadership role. What is the wife's role to do? Is to affirm that and continue to help it on. And what happens if it needs change? Peter tells us how to do that. What happens if there needs to be adjustment? What does Peter say? Here's how you do it. Here's what brings about permanent change. Your hope is not in your husband. Your hope is in God. Again, like the song said, as we sang it over and over again, he will hold me fast. Like, so you could, we could add our own line in there. When your husband fails you again and again and again, he will hold me fast. All right? Like, think through that. This is what it's saying. Do not hope in your husband. Do not hope in your spouse. You hope in God and God alone. Now, real quick, before we turn the page here and move off of what Peter's saying to ladies and move to husbands, I want to talk to you about an attitude that can easily creep up if we're not careful. Husbands, you may have been sitting here the last three weeks saying, about time Pastor Tim got to talk about something that's going to bring change around my house. I'm talking to you right now. And I'm talking to the wife that might be sitting here and say, finally he's done talking to me. It's about time he straightened this guy out. Right? To both of you who are thinking that, that already should be a reaction of your heart to say something funky is going on here in my heart. Because God has said to a all throughout Scripture, you need to look to your own heart. Examine your own heart. Because when the Spirit of God starts working on us, our knee-jerk reaction is, you're right, tell them. You know, like the famous Isaiah passage, hear my Lord, send him. You know, we, we like to do that. We like to say everybody else has got the issue, not me. 
If only my wife would get her act together, it would make this. Or if only my husband would get his act together, it would make it look like this. And we start to realize that really the root of the problem, you know, like the one when you start listing all your issues, you know, the number one thing that all of your issues have in common is you. As we start to work on our own, as we start to place our hope and trust in God, ladies, we'll talk with you first. As you start to trust God and trust him, fully trusting him, lasting change will start to happen. Now, you may never see it this side of heaven. But whether you see that change this side of heaven or not, does it still change the fact that you trust God? It doesn't change. For men, our job, as we were sitting here listening to what Peter has to say about our wives, our job is to encourage our wives and create an atmosphere where she can thrive. You need to think about that for a moment. As men, our job is to create an atmosphere where our wives thrive. That is at the root of it all. And I would even go even further to say, and as a man I feel very confident to say this, I would say 110%, if that's possible, of all of the American issues that we're dealing with today can easily be laid at the feet of men. And I would say, you look at our homes, you look at our churches, you look at our country, they're there. I'm gonna, we'll get to the men here in a second, and I'll dive into that more. But before we hop off of this, I wanna say, ladies, I pray that you have been challenged, and I pray that you spend some time digging deep into the word of God and saying, Lord, help me trust you more. That was Jesus' example. He entrusted him who judges fair. Looking past the immediate to the longevity of it. Now, guys, point number three, the understanding husband. Uh, we're only going to get through uh, 7A, and it's not the Canadian number. It's just where we're going to get today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Underline that word understanding, circle it. That word understanding literally, literally means living in a knowable way. What does that mean then, husbands? You've got to get to what? Getting to know you, like the song says, right? Getting to know all about you. This is where, what we're talking about. It literally is the pursuit of your wife. When we talk about getting to know your wife, guys, listen clearly. This is not, while she is talking, you thinking you're actively learning by nodding your head and being 100 miles somewhere else. All right, this is not, uh-huh, uh-huh, all right. It's amazing to me how many times Allison surprises me with something we're going to do today that she has told me about for the last seven weeks. And I'm going to go, and our running joke that we've had in our own house is, have you said that out loud or just in your head? All right, because I'm going, like, I don't think you've said that. And so we're listening here, and I would honestly say I have a hard time actively listening in situations like that because after a while it just is going in one ear and out the other, and I'm going, am I actually pursuing knowing my wife? And so now we have to ask ourselves, well, so how does a husband live in a knowable way? And you say, Tim, there's only one verse here. You might as well just wrap it up today. And I'm going to go, no, because here's what we have to know. Let's look at verse 7 here. Here's the things we have to know. I'll read the whole verse, and then here are all of the points we will have moving forward. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So here's what we need to know as men. First of all, we need to know this. 
Live with your what? Wives. So you can literally underline wife. We need to know what a wife is. We need to know next how to show honor. What does it mean to show honor? We got that to deal with. We also have to show honor to the woman. We have to figure out what's this going on. It's almost as if Genesis didn't give us an example of where this whole woman thing came from, all right, that we've got to deal with. Next, Peter tells us that they're a vessel. Not only that, he tells us that they're a weaker vessel. So what does that have to do with honoring a woman? How do these things play out? And we haven't even gotten to keep going on. They're heirs with you. How are they an heir with us? And what are they heir of? The grace of life. And then, not even that, we have to figure out what does it mean that our, what do our prayers have to do with all of this? And if we don't do all of this, how are our prayers hindered? All right, so it's not as if the ladies just had a little bit. As guys, we have a lot that we've got to mine here over these past weeks because if we don't understand this, nothing is going to make sense. These are the things a husband must not just have a peripheral understanding about. He must know them, know them deeply because what he has been called to do is to live with his wife in an understanding way. That means his pursuit is to understand his wife. I literally wrote it twice in my notes. It is not just nodding when they're talking. But sadly, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, as men, we can fall into this. And we use it almost as a joke, and, but it's, the reason why it's funny is because it hits home. Most of us live our lives with this thought. Well, when we got married, I told her I loved her. Right? And when it changes, I'll let her know. Like, what else more than we... I, like, I said it once. That's all that we need to know. And that is completely devoid of what Peter is going to be telling us. That it doesn't even have a room in that. But, it, but again, the reason why it has a humorness to it is because as guys, we struggle with this, don't we? We go, hey, listen, I mean, we either give up trying, right? Or we try and realize this is hard work. There's a lot of layers in this whole thing of knowing my wife and we just give up and we just then do a, a surface attempt at it instead of saying, do I actively pursue getting to know my wife? This is my life's journey to get to know her. Because what team is she on? And, and think about this for a second. One of the most beautiful things that happens in a marriage is when the two get married, like my wife's last name changed because she's on team what? Yorgi, my name. She's on my team. So what must I do for the person who's on my team? Get to know them as best as I can and pursue them. This is the attitude that as men we are to have. Yet, as I told you before, I really do believe you can lay at the root, lay at the feet of men the root of all of the problems in our society. I really do believe, guys, God's word gives us everything we need for true masculinity and for a group of men who are willing to stand in the gap and make a difference. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The uh, Abolition of Men, I'm only just going to just take a small little line. He says, I'm summarizing it, we have made men without chess, and we expect virtue. What he is literally saying, and he'll go on to say, we had a society, have removed what, what a godly man should be and have replaced it with literally an empty shell of nothingness. And all of a sudden, the call goes out for men to rise up and be men, and we just see a hollow shell that is left there. And this has not just happened one generation. This has been generation after generation after generation after generation of men being taught all of these things that are nothing to do with being a man, 
And all of a sudden we wonder, where are the men? And so as we go through this, just like by God's grace, I believe the call has gone out to young wives and young ladies. This is how you conduct yourself as men. We are the tone centers of this. We are the ones that set the ebb and flow of our homes. And so here's the thing that I love to throw out to you as men. When you are very quick to start to complain about something, just pull out a mirror. That's all you need to do. Because where does the problem start? With you. When we are about ready to say to our wives, if only my wife was, you know, like the person on that team or whatever. Pull out your mirror and go, all right, just start talking to yourself. Because what have you done to set the tone to allow your wife to function in a way that brings about her true beauty and her true grace. Because if we're honest, men, if we are dealing with our wives in an understanding way, our wives' beauty radiates even greater than the first day we met her. Because we've created an area and an atmosphere for our wives to flourish. But if we're not careful, we can be men who become incredibly selfish, we can become men from Adam and our sin nature is passive. We can become lazy. And all of a sudden, what we like to do is what Adam did in the garden when God came and said, give an account, Adam, for what you did. And Adam went, the woman did it. We literally said, the one you took out of me, it's her fault. That is, we will hopefully learn how ridiculous that is. And what did Eve do then? Following her husband's leadership there said it was the certain serpent's fault. Who set the tone? So in front of us guys, as I always like to say, we want to be equal opportunity offenders. We have a lot of work to do. We don't do it in our own strength. We look to one another as we look to God. Because here's what you don't want. We don't need a masculine version of you. We need a godly version of you. A God-saturated, God-honoring version of you. Because at the end of the day, as men, we set the tone for it all. It is not because ladies cannot set the tone. It is because what God has called us to do. And the woman's role, as we've talked about this all again, is to come along and to beautify and to help with the task that God has given. Again, ladies, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, the text says, you are her children if you do good and don't fear any. So men and women, we've been called to do good and not to fear anything. So we summarize it. What did we learn today? Here's what we learned. We learned the importance of godly examples. We learned, learned the importance of proper marital relationships. And also, men, we learn the importance of knowing your wife. We'll dive more into this in the future, but I pray, as we will go to prayer here, to understand, because the song we're going to sing is Holy, 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 and you go, what in the world does Holy, Holy, Holy have to do with marriage and things like this? Well, just throw this out. The more you pursue the holy, the more your marriage will resemble a God-honoring marriage. And so we have been called to look to God and His holiness and follow Him, and as we do that, Things of this world will go strangely dim, and we will follow him and him alone. So let's pray. Dearly Father, 
Thank you for your truth and your word. Thank you for the way that by your grace you have opened up these things to Peter that he wrote down to pass on from generation to generation to generation. Help us to teach the next generation how they are to live. Help the call for men and women to rise up and to be what you've called them to be. Help our marriages. May we fight for our marriages. May we stand up for the truth. And by your grace, may this church be a beacon of hope to the world all around us. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen.